You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have made your church a preaching church. And, uh, Lord, for your word that is to be declared to the very ends of the earth, we pray that you would give us strength and courage and boldness to do that which you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Article 35, we're nearing. This is it. This is actually it. We're, we're, we're done. Uh, I know you'll say, well, there are 39 articles, but we've conflated some of them together because there are lots of related ones. And, in fact, this one is somewhat related to uh, the article on the church or what defines the church uh, where the uh, reformers wrote that you can tell where the church is, uh, where there is the faithful preaching of the word of God and where his sacraments are rightly and duly administered and that there are people gathered there for that purpose. Uh, anything other than that is not a church. It's, just, it's, it's not biblically speaking. Um, and so, uh, but it would qualify actually as a church uh, if you are gathered together in your small group Bible study and you have your Bibles open, that's actually church. You're, you're, you're doing church. Uh, I heard uh, one little girl this morning say something really cute and actually uh, theologically profound where she looked at her dad and she didn't want to be with him anymore and she said, I want to go to my church. And what she meant was what? The classroom downstairs. But she's right. She wanted to go to her church. And that is her church uh, in a sense. And so really... The Advent is made up of a whole lot of churches, uh, and, and that's uh, just the, the, the nature of the beast. And so church is not simply something that we do on Sundays, although we do do it on Sundays, uh, but it's throughout the week. But the main emphasis there in that article is that the Word of God uh, would be preached or that you would dwell in the Word of God. So let me read the Article 35, which piggybacks on the article concerning the church. Uh, the second book of homilies, I'm going to tell you what all this means. The several titles whereof we have joined under this article doth contain a godly and wholesome doctrine, and necessary for these times, as doth the former book of homilies, which were set forth in the time of Edward VI. And therefore we judge them to be read in churches by the ministers, diligently and distinctly, that they may be understanded of... That's not good grammar. Why would they write that? That they may be understanded of the people. They don't have Word document. Okay, so is that real understanded? Does anyone know anything about Elizabethan English? That can't be true. That can't be true. And then there's a list of 21 uh, homilies. So what happened at the time of the Reformation, uh, the state of preaching was not simply abysmal. Uh, it was non-existent, which actually may have been a very good thing because the last thing you want is for some knucklehead to be let loose on a congregation. And also what you had is an issue, and this was huge in England. This is a, a particular problem in England where you were the rector of a parish. And, of course, that's a geographic area. So you might actually have multiple churches that fall within your parish. You were the rector of a parish or even a bishop of a diocese, and you never, ever sat foot, stepped foot in your diocese or your parish. They were absentee. Uh, if you're lucky, they might have a curate or there might be some other old bishop around, and that was another problem, too. There was no pension fund 
There was no mandatory retirement age. And so, and you actually, by law, could not resign or quit as a bishop in the Church of England. So you went until you died. And if you were infirm for the last 10 years of your life, what did that mean? You never visited a church or administered uh, confirmation for 10 years. And so because of a confluence of all those things, plus bad theology, which we're going to get to, uh, preaching was pretty non-existent. So at the time of the Reformation, the liturgy was in Latin. We remember that. And um, the sermon, if there was one, uh, was just sort of a discourse on uh, morality, typically, or the obligation uh, that a Christian has. And um, you, uh, the only saving grace might have been if you were lucky enough to be in a church with stained glass windows, uh, which at least told the story, right? You could, and I mean, our church is modeled on a medieval church where uh, that assumes that the preaching must be bad. Uh, where you can actually start up. If you look at the lectern side, uh, there's the, the purpley-looking window, and you see Adam and Eve being cast out, but at the bottom of the window, you see the birth of Jesus, and then you work your way around, and it's the life of Jesus in, in pretty much sequential order. Uh, there's some hiccups in the back when you get to the Apostles' Creed, but you loop around, and then the, la- the window that is on the other side, the pulpit side of the chancel is what? Jesus returned. Right? Jesus returned. So the two advents of the Lord, his incarnation and his second coming, and that's why we're the church of the... Y'all hesitated. <laughs> where, where am I? Where am I? Where are my meds? Okay, we're the church of the advent, if you didn't know that. Uh, and so that's why those windows are placed uh, where they are, and at least they tell the story. But the problem is this, is that they're not enough. God has revealed himself generally in the world. So you can go look at a beautiful view, watch a beautiful sunset. Uh, Lauren and I were out in Oregon, and the stars were just amazing uh, to behold. And uh, uh, Jupiter and Venus were bright in the sky, and it was just remarkable. And you couldn't help but look back and say, God is good. And yet, that's not enough to help us understand who Jesus is. So God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, gives us his word. He gives us his word so that we can actually know exactly who he is and how we get right with him. So that's why Paul writes in Romans um, this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That is the Lord Jesus. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. As Latimer, uh, one of the great English reformers, Hugh Latimer said, we cannot be saved without faith, and faith cometh by the hearing of the word. There must be preachers if we look to be saved. Did we ever really think about that? Uh, We're going to get to modern preaching Uh, But at that time, uh, what they found was that there was not just widespread theological ignorance, but people had a wrong notion of who God was and what he was for them. If you've ever seen the movie Luther, which is a great movie and historically accurate, and those movies are great that are like that because it's the part you think that couldn't possibly be true, and those are the true parts. So the part at the very beginning where the, 
the young person uh, commits suicide. And Luther actually does the funeral. There's evidence that he did that. Uh, all of that and why Luther reacted the way that he did is because people had a wrong-headed notion of God and that was primarily the fault of the church because what the church was teaching and preaching was not actually in sync with what the Bible was saying about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's understandable because what was the Bible written in? Right? I mean, you could get Hebrew and Greek, but Latin... And at this time, almost a supermajority of priests couldn't read or understand Latin. So you've got a problem on your hands, don't you? So all you're doing is playing a game of coconut telegraph. You ever play that game? You know, where you, or uh, what do you all call it? I don't know, where you t tell somebody one thing in the ear, and then you, you yep, there you go, whatever. Where are we again? Just kidding. Uh, yeah, so uh, you do that. And what, what makes the game so great is by the time it gets to the sixth or seventh person, lost, completely lost. Well, that's exactly what the church was about and what they were playing uh, at the time of the Reformation, that they were just saying things that were patently untrue. Uh, the selling of indulgences in order to uh, get into heaven, uh, uh, the great uh, John, what was the, um, Tetzel, uh, the great... Um, indulgence preacher for Rome, he said that every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And, and he, was, he was very good at what he did. Uh, and he really, this is, this is the guy that got Luther's goose and uh, really got him going. And understandably so, because people were leaving Wittenberg and going over and putting up money and going back and showing their pastor, Luther, look, I got mom and dad out. They're in heaven now. And, well, what, well, I cleaned out my bank account. I mean, the, the modern-day televangelists who fleece uh, men and women of their life savings uh, are nothing compared to what was happening then. It's along the same lines, but we're talking about it was much more widespread because the people didn't know any uh, better. And so along comes the Reformation, and uh, here is... Uh, uh, a quote from Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who wrote a really great book that's available in our bookstore, The Theology of the English Reformers, and he wrote this. It became plain to the Reformers as they read the New Testament that preaching had been the primary function of the apostles. St. Paul, defining his priorities, told the Corinthians that Christ had sent him not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Christ himself was a tireless preacher, and he commissioned his followers to preach the gospel throughout the world. A church that has ceased to preach or that preaches error contrary to the Scripture has ceased to function as a true part of the church of Christ. Hence, Article 19 specifically designates the preaching of the pure word of God as a, as a distinguishing mark of the authentic church. So they translate uh, the, um, the Bible into English. They translate the liturgy into English. And yet you still have a whole crop of preachers that really don't know what they're talking about. Even those who have come over and said, I'm believing on the gospel. Uh, it would be, uh, I'm trying to think of a comparison in our modern church, but, uh, but needless to say, there may not be one. And it was just such a mess that the reformers in the Church of England, Cranmer and others said, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. 
nobody's allowed to preach anymore unless you're a really good preacher. What we're going to do is we're going to write sermons. We're going to write a book of sermons on various topics, and we want you to get up in, on Sunday and either read one of those or at least part of one of those until you're actually ready to preach. Now, you notice that there, there was one book that came out then, and then another book came out under Elizabeth. So even after the 15, around 1550, uh, Beyond that, 25 years or so beyond that, you still have the same problem. So this was not an overnight fix. Uh, and, of course, the reformers would say, look, if you actually are an able preacher and you can rightly handle the word of God, you should. Uh, and at the same time, if you aren't an able preacher and you're not able to handle the word of God, there's no shame in reading one of these homilies because better for them to get sound doctrine and truth than for them to be led astray because of your arrogance and pride. And so, uh, in some ways, I, I wish that these were introduced uh, today. Because, let's look at some statistics. Uh, some statistics today. Uh, uh, so that's the situation with preaching during the time of the Reformation. Latimer was the great preacher of the English Reformation. You can, uh, you can, he wrote uh, a sermon um, that uh, is kind of... Uh, is, I know, every time I say something's famous, Lauren says, you and five other people know about it. Um, uh, he, uh, Latimer wrote a sermon called The Sermon of the Plow. And let me just um, uh, read a, a, little, a little section uh, of that. Um, and he's really getting on these bishops who are preaching heresy or are not preaching at all. And he says, for ever since the uh, prelates... That's the, um, the bishops. Were made lords and nobles, the plow standeth. That is preaching. There is no work done. The people starve. They hawk. They, that's falconry. They hawk. They hunt. They card. They dice. They pass time in their prelacies. That's their bishops' palaces. With gallant gentlemen, with their dancing minions, and with their fresh companions. So that plowing, preaching, is set aside. And by their lording, lording and loitering, preaching and plowing is clean gone. Now he's preaching to bishops. And then he came to a moment when everyone present must have been waiting with bated breath to hear the disclosure of the name of the prelate who, unlike those whom Latimer had been censuring, was anything but negligent in his work. Because there were very active bishops that were doing good things in the Church of England, and they must have been waiting for him to say, please call us out and say that we're not like those people. And so Latimer proceeds. And now I would ask you a strange question. Who is the most diligent bishop and prelate in all England that passeth all the rest in doing his office? I can tell you, for I know who it is. I know him well. But now I think I see you listening and hearkening that I should name him. There is one that passeth all other and is the most diligent prelate and preacher in all England. And will you know who he is? I will tell you. It is the devil. He is the most diligent preacher of all other. He's never out of his diocese. He's never far from his cure. You shall never find him unoccupied. He is ever in his parish. He keepeth residence at all times. You shall never find him out of the way. Call for him when you will. He is ever at home. The diligentest preacher in all the realm, he is ever at his plow. No lording, no loitering can hinder him. He is ever applying his business. 
You shall never find him idle. I warrant you. And his office is to hinder religion, to set up idolatry, and to teach all kinds of superstition. Well, you can imagine how that went over. Uh, but he's right. He's right. Um, there, there, isn't, there isn't a more diligent preacher in the United States of America than the devil. He's always at it. And, and he's always, he will preach in and out of season. And yet, uh, there seems, as in Latimer's day, uh, we've come full circle, and there seems to be a complete uh, dearth of preaching. Let me read to you some statistics, but before I go any uh, farther, anybody want to ask anything about or say anything about preaching at the time of the Reformation? Okay. Well, new boss, same as the old boss. Here we go. Can anyone guess what the median average Sunday attendance is in the Episcopal Church? Close, David. You would have won the prices right. 57. 57. Two-thirds of Episcopalians are 50 or older, and 35% are 65 and older. There's a, a group in uh, the Episcopal Church called Forward Movement, and it's got widespread following, and is a, a, regardless of where you stand theologically, it's pretty widely respected. And I can take her, they do a little devotional every day, forward, day by day, not the best, uh, but at least it gets people reading their Bible on a daily basis, which I'm glad for. But they began to see the significant slide uh, in the Episcopal Church, and they very wisely understood it as a spiritual issue. And so what they did is they started a new organization under the umbrella of Forward Movement called Renewal Works, and they did an across-the-board survey of Episcopal churches in the United States. And you know what they found? They categorized all Episcopalians that they interviewed, and these are people who are regular church attenders, regular church attenders, which to them meant that they attended church at least one Sunday a month. And... What they, they categorized them as uh, along a sort of spectrum, like unbeliever all the way to functioning, active, complete and total member. And of all these people that they interviewed, 73%, 73% of active Episcopalians could not say they had a personal relationship with God through Jesus. 73% of people sitting in the pews in an Episcopal church on Sunday do not know who God is personally. That's astounding. They were even shocked by it. And they found what led to that. A lack of preaching rooted in conviction and clarity. Preaching seemed to be the pro Well, the main problem would be conviction, right? Because out of your convictions come your behaviors. And so if you have preachers that have various convictions or far-fetched convictions or no conviction at all, that's going to impact how you preach. What you believe about God's Word will impact how you preach. I thought it was interesting. In our own diocese, we had a guy, um, Thomas Long, Tom Long, at, is that right? Doug Webster, he's over at Emory. Uh, yeah. yeah, Tom Long who's considered a, a preaching guru, and I think it was kind of a coup that we were able to get him to come and uh, pre, uh, speak to the clergy about preaching. I mean, God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform that Episcopalians were having a clergy gathering to talk about preaching. Unheard of. 
So we went, and I was very excited. I, I mean, I don't agree with Tom Long on, any, on everything, but very glad that he was there, and I think he did a great job. He did a really great job where he did a big plenary session, and then in the afternoon he said, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk about this Sunday's lectionary readings, and I'm going to show you how I would prepare for them and how I would come out on the other side with a sermon. And of the hundred or so clergy that were gathered there, uh, there were only 20 of us there for the afternoon. The other 80 or so uh, went to something about the future of the church pension fund. Um, and I thought, not that that's unimportant, but that really says something. So some of the guys that weren't there, I approached them and I said, why, um, why did you go to... Uh, some guys did say, well, I'm just really worried about my church fund and, and I, I feel like I already know where I'm going this Sunday. But I was amazed by the number of guys who said... Well, because he makes too much of the sermon. Uh, the sermon is not that big a deal in our tradition. That's what they said. In regard, obviously, I didn't read this. Um, the sermon's not that big in our tradition. Uh, and furthermore, I don't really uh, have to prepare for the sermon because the liturgy and communion does it all for me. And I said, oh, brother. <laughs> uh, I don't think that that's true. And I think that if I dug a little bit deeper, that certainly would not have been untrue. And that was a number of the gentlemen that, and ladies that decided not to come back uh, for that, all, that uh, session. And one of them I thought was funny. I said, well, when do you do your sermon preparation? And they said, after the gospel reading and before I step in the pulpit, which is seconds, uh, maybe. Uh, I heard a guy in England one time uh, step into the pulpit, and he said, while I was having my breakfast this morning, I thought of what I would say to you good people. At that point, I knew he had nothing to say. He had nothing to say. Uh, I think that there's a place for the Spirit in the life of preaching. Uh, but are we saying that the Spirit doesn't work in the study the week before the sermon is to be preached? And uh, so the state of preaching, I would say, certainly in our denomination, evidentially, uh, is, in a, is in a really bad place uh, right now. Uh, not just the quality of preaching, but the conviction that preaching matters. And I think that when it comes to the quality of preaching, uh, we, as Robert Smith at Beeson says, we preach so that you can preach. Uh, we preach uh, so that you can go home and you can look at your bulletin and you can look at the readings and say, yes, I understand this better and now I feel like I can explain what First John is saying uh, to my children or what... First John is saying uh, to uh, my friends, uh, we want you to be able to handle the word of God. And if you listen to a sermon and you're, have, you're sit, sitting there wondering what in the world, what passage is this person preaching on? That's a pretty good indication that they're not actually preaching the Bible. They're preaching from the book of Second Opinion, uh, which uh, every preacher needs to be cautioned against. And the crazy thing about it is forget the biblical perspective. Forget our history as Anglicans. Believe it or not, Anglicans as a preaching church. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. I mean, it's not to say that, that there weren't people who were diligent, obviously, uh, at their task, but to say that, oh, that's, that's what Presbyterians do, or that's what Baptists do. And, of course, nobody that says that has ever been to a Presbyterian or Baptist church. They just read about it. Uh, or saw it on TV. Whatever it is, that that's what they do, uh, that's just historically inaccurate. Now, there is something to be said about sermon lengths. Um, 
Uh, I think that there are a handful of people, uh, maybe a dozen people in the, in the Anglican communion that can preach much more than 20 minutes, and none of them are in Birmingham at the Advent. Um, uh, which, uh, so I get on about sermon length. I do believe that sermonettes make Christianettes. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, 15 to 20 minutes uh, hits about the mark. Because I don't know about you, I mean, I totally zone out. Uh, now, I've heard preachers that have gone for 30 minutes, and it's in a blink of an eye. It's amazing. And then I've heard preachers for 10 minutes, and it's, it's interminable. Uh, it's just sort of like, land the plane, buddy. Let's, you know, let's go. Um, I, I get it. Uh, I get it. And yet, such short shrift is given, given to preaching in our tradition. And not only is that bad biblically, but it's bad from a marketing perspective. Last month, last month, the Barna Group released research on why people attend church and why they do not attend church. What was the number one reason why people attend a particular church? Give me some credit. Somebody said it. What we're talking about? Preaching. Preaching. 76% of people who attend church at least one Sunday a month say that preaching is why they go where they go. So it's no wonder we have small churches because there's nothing worth going to hear. So I can tell you, uh, and of that uh, specifically, the 76% say that it's a major factor. There are other factors, major factor. Sermons or talks that teach you more about Scripture is number one. At 75%, sermons or lectures that help you connect religion to your own life. And in both of those, do you know how many people said that it was not a factor at all, preaching? 8%. Only 8% said preaching is not a factor at all. And then third, well, I would say that those two are one, sermons. Guess what the second one was? Spiritual programs geared toward children and teenagers. And uh, Lauren, you mentioned uh, music. That came... One, two, two, three, four, five, sixth. Right below social activities that allow you to get to know people in your community. Um, so uh, that's not to say that it's not important. But a lot of, see, I mean, I think that that's it. I mean, a lot of people think, well, what we need to do is if we just change the music or if Andrew starts wearing jeans or puts gel in his hair, um, I keep doing that and, and people get mad at me. But... Um, that that will do it. Now, there is something to be said about, about not putting impediments in the way of the gospel. So, if you want to wear a Hickey Freeman suit to the Advent, God bless you. But if you want to wear jeans and put gel in your hair, absolutely. There's no way less than someone who's wearing a suit, even though it feels a little bit awkward uh, at the Advent. Uh, but we need to be a church uh, where the gospel takes priority uh, over those types of things. And in fact, it's okay to have preferences about certain things. So, for instance, if you're like, well, I like the choir and the organ, great. But if you say, well, I actually like uh, the guitar and, and something more contemporary, that's great too. Let's not mistake preference for virtue. And let's not, equip, let's not make that an equivalent uh, of what we're trying to do, which is to put the gospel out so that every man, woman, and child uh, can hear. And so let's understand what's primary and what's secondary. 
because I'll get uh, emails or, or little comments from time to time from people who get upset about, um, you know, for instance, during the week. During the week, uh, some of you have come up to me and said, why aren't you wearing a collar? Now, I'm a cradle Episcopalian, which absolutely means nothing, by the way. That means nothing. Uh, and um, the church I grew up in, the rector said, there are three times, Andrew, when you need to wear your collar after you're ordained. Sunday services, when you visit the hospital, and traffic court. Those are the three times <laughs> you put the dog collar on. So if I walked into the rector's study during the week, he would probably, well, I know he would because I saw him. He'd be wearing a, a shirt and tie and, uh, and a jacket. And now that was because of his preference in churchmanship. And quite frankly, y'all know these are made of plastic? It's awful. These things are awful. And uh, they create rashes and it, it's just, it's terrible. But the thing is, is what I've noticed in, uh, even in Birmingham, is that by not wearing this during the week, unless I am going to the hospital or something like that, uh, where I have to be known as a clergyman, actually wearing a jacket and tie allows me to share the gospel with people who otherwise would be turned off by the collar. I've actually witnessed that, and it is astounding the difference. Being in a shirt and tie, you get in a conversation and end the conversation like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? Tell me where before people would see the collar and I'd engage in a conversation and they would just sort of, you know, scoot out the side. They just didn't want uh, to, to talk to me. That, and, and I'm just going to say, when I, beware, beware the clergy person who wears their collar at all times. Jesus actually had something to say about that. Those who dress in their fine robes, so in order that they might be able to be distinguished as Levites, so that you know who they are. I mean, people who go on vacation and wear their collars in church, that only says one thing, I want you to know who I am. I don't want anybody to know who I am when I'm on vacation in church. <laughs> I don't. I, I really don't. And, and furthermore, I get, I, when I step up into the pulpit and I look out and I see somebody in a collar, I think, oh, no. Right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's off-putting even to me. Uh, and, and so primarily our task is not one of a sacerdotal function, which, again, going back to what some of my friends would say, well, what really matters is the liturgy, doing the liturgy right, which I agree with, and communion, which I agree with too, but allowing that to trump preaching stands in the face of not just our history, but stands in the face of the Bible. When Jesus said, go and preach, that was the primary function of the apostles, was preaching. And out of that preaching, which is why at the Advent, I think it's such a wonderful place, is that everything is placed in its rightful spot. And by that, I mean because the preaching is faithful, it makes Holy Communion mean that much more. Because the preaching is faithful, it allows the liturgy to sing. So when you hear the liturgy, all of a sudden, you hear it. You actually hear it. I mean, I was thinking about it today. I mean, you know, when I'm up there preaching, I'm actually preaching to myself. And I, I just, I was overwhelmed when I was administering communion. Uh, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. For you. It wasn't me up there trying to manufacture anything, but, but you see, when the word and the preaching is congruent with what's going on in the service, and especially when the hymns uh, fit well, 
There's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing uh, like it. Uh, but all of that is because it must, must, must uh, be rooted uh, in the Word. And, and that's why I often say, too, that that's what makes communion so powerful because we get up and we preach a sermon. And then after that sermon, at, and we issue what I'm very happy to say that most Episcopal churches do every Sunday, but they don't think of it this way. We issue an altar call. Now you've heard the word preached. Come forward and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and kneel at the rail and hear the gospel and know what Jesus has done for you. And so the importance of preaching is not uh, to be underestimated. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, in being given a commission, and this is my prayer, uh, I um, am preaching at Sam Mugish's installation as Bishop of Shira Diocese uh, this uh, sun, upcoming Sunday, and, um, and I really am now in agreement with John Wesley, who told his preachers that you have nothing to do but save souls. That's your job. Echoing Jeremiah, who said, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And there are a lot of preachers who have extinguished fires in their hearts. And they just, it's not there. It's not there. And so uh, I hope that the Advent, in addition to ministering to the congregation that meets on a weekly basis, that God might actually use us uh, to rekindle uh, a passion for preaching uh, and preaching the gospel, uh, not only to our denomination, but to the ends of the earth. Uh, Because how wonderful would it be if people invited friends to their local Episcopal church, uh, and typically when they do that now, it's because you must come because the pageantry is not to be believed. It's lovely. But praise God for the day when we invite our friends to our local Episcopal, Episcopal church to say, come and hear the gospel. Come and hear what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus. And understanding that the liturgy and the communion and all of that is all going to fit into place and minister to the whole person. Questions, comments, concerns? In, in all of my years in the Episcopal Church, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon that I thought was too short. And speaking of, you know, this morning you preached a, a, a very interesting it was difference. Right. Why, why is this easier to take and, and more yeah. Yeah, what's the difference between being in here and and being in there? Okay, I can can answer that after we get you on the vestry. Um, uh, Yeah, so in in some sense there is a difference because here we are actually able to, because we have the time. That's one thing. There's a schedule issue that if I went on for too long, it would then get into this. And so, and and one of the things that I'm very cognizant of when I preach is that if I go long, intentionally, because sometimes it's unintentional, uh, intentionally, knowing that it's going to break into the Sunday school hour or even 40 minutes, what I'm saying is what I have to say is more important than the person who's prepped all week long for their Sunday school class. So that's part of it. So there is a part in which uh, I think that uh, we need uh, to get it all done in the hour. And quite frankly, if we go over, sometimes it's not because of the preaching. There are lots of other things that are happening in the service. And sometimes Episcopal churches will do the zaniest things in order to cut corners. Like they'll say, well, we won't do all the comfortable words. 
or we won't do the prayer of humble access, which takes 20 seconds. I mean, it's not, but, um, but for instance, this morning, uh, you'll notice we only sang verse, verses 1, 4 through 6 of the last hymn at 9 o'clock. That was an order to try to get us out because I knew that we had a, a lot to do. The other thing that I would say is that we really do want, look, I, I would love to be able to take a little bit longer to unpack certain things. Like this morning, I didn't get to three quarters of what I wanted to get to, uh, but making sure uh, that the pulpit is about proclamation, that it really is uh, about the gospel. And so I do think that there's a difference in style and format between what we're doing in the pulpit and what, what we're doing here. So there are some venues around here that do let us go a little bit longer uh, in our sermons, and I will do that. So there was one Sunday I can remember where we only had one or two baptisms on a baptism Sunday, which means the, ser- the service becomes very short. And I actually could have preached for over 30 minutes. Now, I didn't, uh, but I definitely went beyond what we normally do. But I, I, I hear you, and, um, and I, I would much rather uh, somebody come up to me and complain uh, that the sermons are too short uh, rather than uh, too long. Yeah, so, so you can come to Sunrise Centers where I'll chew your ear off for almost an hour. Uh, on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m., you get breakfast with it. And, uh, and you actually get a preview to the sermon where I actually do kind of think out loud uh, about what I'm going to be preaching on on Sunday, uh, which doesn't always turn out the same way. So um, it, it's interesting to me. Uh, it's disappointing, the numbers that you quoted. But what is interesting to me is that when Jesus was here on earth, the, the people that he was upset with uh, were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the leadership. Right. And he was openly hostile to them at times. And yet he was very compassionate to your everyday run-of-the-mill sinner. Um, and yet, in, in spite of that, uh, these clergy who are in leadership positions don't seem to take that seriously. Right. I mean, that was kind of, uh, you know, a recurring theme. And so my question is, what category do they see themselves in? Entertainment, psychology? I think, I think they help along the way. I mean, very pastoral, a bit of a chaplain's role. Um, to kind of help them in their spiritual quest, whatever it might be. I'll give you a good example of this. When Fitz Allison was teaching at Virginia Seminary before he went to Grace Church and before he became bishop of South Carolina, Fitz got up and he preached a sermon at Virginia Seminary Chapel where he he knew he was going to Grace Church, and so he just went for it um, and really let him have it. And then um, at uh, at the end of the service, uh, Fitz, because it was one of his last chapel services there, they asked him to give the final blessing, and he stood up and he pronounced the final blessing, and several people made a beeline to the door to absolutely chew him out. And he was ready for this, and he braced himself. But you know what they chewed him out about? Not about his sermon, but that he didn't touch the communion table with his left hand while pronouncing the blessing with his right, as if it sort of... You know, kind of. Uh, now, now, sub, we can all laugh at that, but we all feel the same way about other types of things that are in the same category. 
where we care more about that uh, and we worry more about liturgical precision than anything else. And so that's why Fitz's advice to me when I was ordained was, Andrew, you can preach heresy from the pulpit in the Episcopal Church and they won't say a thing. But you start moving the furniture around and they'll tear your rear end up. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. Yeah, yes, Charles. Um, I came in a little late and you may have said something about this, but I'll mention it anyway. About 15, 16 years ago in, in this same class, Paul used to uh, talk about a distinction between uh, the two ordinances of the word and the sacrament. Mm -hmm. and, and what he had to say about that was, was that the sacrament of Holy Communion is a nourishing and sustaining ordinance, but it's the preaching of the word that is transformative. Right. And I've always found that to be a, a useful kind of distinction to, to keep in mind in, in keeping these things yeah, in I mean, uh, Yeah, one springs, uh, communion springs from the other, which is why one of the holdovers that they've managed not to get rid of in the prayer book is that you're not allowed to have Holy Communion without a sermon in the Episcopal Church, technically. Now, you can preach a sermon. You don't have to have Holy Communion. Um, so you can have morning prayer, and you don't need, actually, you don't need a sermon there because you've got a lot of Bible readings. But if you're going to do Holy Communion, you have to preach a sermon because of the understanding that it's inseparable from the Word. It's by itself, it's, it's an empty sign. It has to be coupled with the Gospel out of time. Yeah, so we're out of time, but I do want to make one uh, last uh, thing. I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, I think the Advent is being as diligent as it can about the future of, of our church, uh, our congregation, and understanding that we do live in a changing world. So many of y'all know that on August the 19th, we're going to start a new service at 11 a.m. in here that runs parallel to that. Our commitment to choral-led uh, Anglican worship has not waned in the least. If anything, uh, actually, to be sure, uh, we've never been more committed to it. We've never committed more resources. Uh, we've never been more supportive uh, of our choral-led uh, services. Uh, but we feel that in addition to that there is a huge swath in our population uh, that would like something a little bit different. Again, not mistaking preference for virtue. And uh, so we've been praying about it since... Uh, the year 2000, um, and uh, we really have uh, and are finally going to pull the trigger. It'll be recognizable as an Anglican service, as an Advent service, uh, but it will be uh, a little bit uh, different. And, and I hope that uh, if you're someone who's startled by that or, or doesn't like it, that you actually would pray and, 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 and ask yourself, you know, is the gospel going out? Is this actually helping people to come into the Advent to hear uh, the message of Jesus Christ? And is that taking deep root uh, in their hearts? And I was talking to one person, and I don't feel like this is explorative, but I was talking to one person and that was not happy with this, and I asked the question, where do your children go to church? Where do your grandchildren go to church? And the answer was nowhere. The answer is nowhere. Uh, we're doing this. Uh, because we know that God doesn't have grandchildren, but he has sons and daughters. And, uh, and I think that the Advent uh, has the ability to be the Advent uh, and not be anything else and to proclaim the gospel. So please commit that uh, to prayer uh, as we begin that at the uh, end uh, of the summer. And the lighting project. Uh, that's much worse. That's much worse. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Yeah. 
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.